Welcome to the Wanting It More podcast. I am your host, Jana Denton-Howes, and it's an absolute delight to have you here. I'm a marriage and intimacy educator, as well as a creator of the Wanting It More program, which has helped thousands of women who are married to men want and enjoy it more in the bedroom. You know, having low desire was something that I personally struggled with for years in my marriage, so I absolutely get it all. You are not alone. Just a heads up, I use all the words in this podcast, so if you've got little ears around or you're in public setting, you may want to pop in some earbuds. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Wanting It More podcast. I am really excited and nervous because it is so rare that I read a book cover to cover and everything that the author is writing, I am just 100% on board with. I am incredibly picky with the books I recommend and I have already recommended this book, The Betrayal Bind, to many of my colleagues and many of my clients as well. So Michelle, thank you so much for agreeing to come on this little podcast of mine. And I would just be thrilled if you could start us off with a little introduction. Sure, absolutely. And thank you for having me. I am, my name is Michelle Mays and I'm a licensed professional counselor and a certified sex addiction therapist and supervisor. And I've been in the field for over 20 years and I have been treating sexual betrayal, sex addiction, trauma, and relationship issues that entire time. And uh, working with both those who are the cheating partner, as well as those who are the betrayed partner. And I have a counseling center located in Leesburg, Virginia, outside of DC. And then I also have also have a coaching uh, organization and we coach uh, betrayed partners and couples who are recovering from betrayal through that organization. So And then I have the new book, The Betrayal Bind. So, you know, one thing I have been wondering, and maybe we'll talk after we hit not record, is how does this woman do it all? I just, I see your ads on Facebook and Instagram. I've been on your website and just hearing all the things that you have your hands in right now, I just think, wow, there, there must be a secret and I will find out the secret, but we're not going to, I have, I have a rock star team. That's it. I have a rock star team. I really do. I, everybody on my team, I love dearly and they're amazing and they believe in what they're doing and they give, give their all to it. So I could not do it if I didn't have that kind of support. That's amazing. Okay, well, I would like to get us started off by reading the first paragraph in chapter one of your book, if I could do this. Nothing can prepare you for the moment you discover that the person closest to you, the person you count on the most, has betrayed you. As that realization slams home, heat and adrenaline rush in, your hands shake, your knees buckle, your heart races, your mind skips like a damaged record jumping from one bad moment to another. The thoughts come too fast to even think, flying by in a kaleidoscope of remembered conversations and events, color and sound, all mixed together in a shower of lies. Your body turns cold, your heart slows, A deep, brick-like dread fills your stomach and chest. The tears come, more tears than you had any idea you could cry. I mean, that's worth the the cost of the book. (laughs) That, um, 
you know, as somebody who has experienced this, I found out that my husband had a 14 year porn addiction. Um, after being, well, it was like a 20 year porn addiction, but after being married for 14 years, I found out. And that was after seeing therapists and coaches and workshops and books, all trying to figure out how to heal my low libido. Mm-hmm. There's a whole section in your book about that, which I don't know if we're going to be able to get to today because there's so much else I want to talk to you about. But I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your personal experience with portrayal because I feel like a big part of the power of your work is that you've experienced
talking about the unwanted call. That really hit home for me, a big turning point in my journey with healing was being able to move from being a victim to this circumstance mm -hmm. to seeing how my life could actually improve and change. And I know that can sound kind of like toxic positivity, um, but when it comes from within, that it's a choice that I'm making, uh, you know, and I, I really love that part of the book. Could, could you talk a little bit more about what you mean by the unwanted call? Yeah, the unwanted call comes from Joseph Campbell's idea about the monomyth and all the stages that every story and fairy tale kind of goes through the same stages, right? And one of those stages is that your the journey, the whole journey and fairy tale and myth or whatever begins with an unwanted call meaning something happens to you, right? So something happens in your life, some kind of crisis, some kind of unwanted circumstance, a diagnosis, an affair, uh, you know, a, a calamity of some sort happens. And in that moment, it pushes you outside of your comfort zone and you are faced with a choice. And the choice that you have is about how you're going to go through the process of dealing with this new event in your life. And I think often we get stuck. We can get stuck in the belief that, that our circumstances are defining us instead of understanding that our circumstances, well, they might be hard. They might be painful. They might be grievous in many ways. It is really the how how we go through the circumstances and the beliefs and the perspective that we bring to that, that impacts the result for us. It impacts the outcome of what happens as a result of those circumstances. So when I work with betrayed partners, I really want them to look at betrayal if they can as, as something that has happened that they didn't want. Nobody wants to be a betrayed partner ever, 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 right? nobody, but it has happened. So they are now in these circumstances. And now the question is, how are you going to go through this? And are you going to allow these really crappy circumstances to be part of what grows you as a person into more of your authentic self, more of who you are supposed to be in the world? So that's what I mean by the unwanted call. It's this choice point that really places us at a crossroads where we get to decide how we're going to go through it and whether we're going to grow from it or whether we're going to shrink from it. You know, a phrase that came to me in the midst of the chaos that is the shock and confusion of betrayal was this is a test sent to me for my own perfecting. And that was my lifeline. That was it. And when I think back to that tumultuous year of my life where we were going through it, I am so damn proud of myself for finding that. And so reading that in your book, it just felt like such a huge validation and such an empowering uh, place to be. It is, it is to me the pivotal thing 
that impacts how betrayed partners go through the experience. If you can get your head around the idea that this has happened in some way for my growth and my betterment, and it's part of my journey and I didn't want it and I wouldn't ask for it, but here it is. So now I'm going to let myself grow through this experience. When you can do that, it changes the entire landscape and it puts you much more in charge of your own experience. So it's a much more empowering stance to be in. And then it, it opens the door to all kinds of healing in your own personal world that you may never have thought could possibly come from betrayal. Yeah. So to take your own question and put it back to you, this is the title of chapter two, what's so complex about partner betrayal? So I think what's so complex about partner betrayal is that it is not usually a single event. So sometimes there are rare occasions where a person may discover that their partner has cheated on them, that their partner has a porn, whatever it is, it can look like a million different things where they discover it and they discover the whole enchilada in that one moment. It is incredibly rare. Most of the time you're discovering the tip of the iceberg or you're discovering a piece of the puzzle and the rest of the puzzle is going to drip out over time. And sometimes that is days, sometimes that is weeks, sometimes that is months, and sometimes that is years that it is dripping out. And because of that, partners, we use the language when we're talking about betrayal and uh, betrayal trauma, we often use the language of post-traumatic stress disorder to diagnose the symptomatic um presentations that partners are bringing. However, when partners are coming into treatment, they're in the middle of the trauma. There is no post for them. It's actually unfolding. And as it is unfolding, it is a multidimensional, uh, multidimensional phenomenon because it's impacting their past, their present, and their future all at one time. So I find out about an affair that's been going on for three years. And now those whole three years look different. The time before them looks different. My present looks totally different. And my future is all in question. So everything about our histories, our present, our future is getting rewritten. And that also makes it very complex because all of a sudden our story, the story that we're living in is unclear to us. And one of our human needs is a need for certainty. So we have a need for certainty and to understand the story that we're living in. So it's very, very disorienting for betrayed partners and for their treatment professionals. And then we also have another layer where the whole process is dynamic because every new piece of information you receive changes everything else. And we often think, oh, that's like, I learned, oh no, the affair was actually eight years. Or, oh, there was more than one affair. I learned all that kind of stuff. So we often think about that in terms of like more information about the cheating. But the thing we don't factor in is that also as we're in the process of healing and growing and learning how to deal with what's happened, all that new information also changes everything. 
So the new healing information also changes us, changes our understanding of our, our ourselves, our partner, our relationship, what we're dealing with, whether it's addiction, whether it's infidelity. So the whole thing is a rodeo and everything is moving and everything is changing and shifting and betrayed partners and their helpers are really like entering into this process together to be in something that's shape shifting all the time rather than, you know, I survived a car crash and I'm now coming in to therapy to deal with something that is over and done with in my past, but that I have trauma symptoms from. This is ongoing and moving around. I love how you describe it as like a rodeo. It is a rodeo. I have never been to rodeo. I'm from Vancouver Island in Canada. I don't even know what I, I can feel it. The dust and the noise. And the, the bucking, the bucking horses and Broncos. Yeah. Fly, people flying through the air, clowns running around. You talk quite a bit about disclosure and the process of disclosure. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about that. Uh, as you've, you've already talked a little bit about how it can come not all at once. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was quicker. I, it was about two weeks, but mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting that. I thought we'd just have it over and done with and get help and move on. And uh, it was, yeah, just more trauma, more trauma every time I heard about something new. What do you, I know you have quite a few recommendations in the book around disclosure. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what you have learned um, over your years of experience. Mm -hmm. Well, so maybe let's define disclosure just for those who don't know what it is, because there's a difference between in the recovery community, discovery and disclosure are two different things. So discovery is when you are discovering the betrayal. You're discovering the cheating behaviors and the lying. You're kind of uncovering it all. And discovery tends to trickle out over a long period of time. And we can have a conversation about why that happens if you want to, but it is typical that it is slowly trickling out as the cheating partner is dealing with needing to tell the truth and trying to, and trying to hide the truth. They're grappling with their own process around it. Disclosure is something very, very different. So disclosure is a facilitated, very intentional, carefully prepared process where the cheating partner and the betrayed partner with therapeutic support um, go through a process where the cheating partner discloses the parameters of the cheating. So they're disclosing the scope and depth, like how long has it been going on? How frequently was it going on? What kinds of behaviors did it include? They're, they're disclosing that. And it's an opportunity for a foundation of trust to get reestablished in the relationship because the cheating partner really becomes willing to say, I'm going to tell all the secrets. I'm going to come. I'm going to tell all the secrets. I'm going to tell the truth about this. The betrayed partner gets an opportunity to now know what was happening in their relationship. So it also balances power because anytime somebody is cheating, they've taken a power over position within their relationship. They now have information in, about 
the relationship agreements that the other person doesn't have. And so the other person is in a one down position. So when the cheating partner comes and says, let me tell you the whole thing, this is what's been going on, how long it's been going on, who it's happened with, blah, blah, blah. It restores a balance of power as well, because now we're both, now we both have the same information about what has happened in our relationship. And now each one of us can make decisions for ourselves about how we want to move forward based on this information. So it's a whole process and people who are um, in the in the sex addiction treatment field in particular, the clinicians who are trained in that are usually trained in how to do disclosure. So there's a whole process, whole preparatory process and way that you walk people through that so that you're not causing more trauma to the betrayed partner um, and you're helping the couple navigate that. But there is a lot of work that has to happen before that because the cheating partner has to come to a place of willingness to really tell the whole truth. And if they're dealing with an addiction, if they're dealing with compulsivity around their sexual behaviors, they actually have to get those stopped and and figure out what that's about for them and arrest the addiction and learn how to stay sober. So there's a bunch of stuff that has to happen before you can get to disclosure typically and actually get a really honest, truthful disclosure. So what are the things that stop a partner from sharing the full truth? So I think for cheating partners, you know, they have been lying for a long time. So depending on how long the cheating has been going on, right? But all cheating also involves lying and hiding. And so for the cheating partner, typically in order to live with themselves while cheating on someone they love, most people cheating, for most people, cheating is against their self-concept. It violates their value system and it violates their belief that they're a good person and wouldn't hurt the people that they love, right? And so in order to live with that, people have to develop within themselves sort of a a psychological scaffolding of reasons why it's okay to cheat. So they develop a story about my partner is this, my relationship is this, this is not good. I don't like this. It's not a big deal. Everybody does this. There's all this rationalization, minimization, justification, different things going on inside the person to make it okay for them to be cheating, why it's all right and that they're not really doing something that bad. So they've got this system going on where they've been lying to themselves about that and then they're lying to their partner and now all of a sudden they get caught or something happens, you know, where it's discovered and it's very rare for a person to decide, let me start telling the truth now. Typically what happens there is instead, let me see what I need to tell and what I can still keep hidden. Let me do damage control, right? So there's a lot of impulse to control the damage. If there's shame about the behaviors, there's a lot of impulse to manage shame by not disclosing information, by not um, telling the secrets. So this is where betrayed partners really run into gaslighting. Because in the process of discovery, they start asking questions, they're trying to get to the bottom of what's going on here. And there's often a whole lot of lying, manipulation, 
scapegoating, all the different things going on by the cheating partner to hide the rest of the story, to try to keep the secrets hidden. And I think that a piece that we often miss in this dynamic also is that the cheating partner has competing attachments. So the cheating partner is attached to their primary partner in the relationship, right? They're attached to them, but they're also attached to the addiction or the affair partner or the pornography, whatever it might be. So they're also torn between these two attachments. And often they're trying to protect the one attachment and also help the primary attachment, their primary person calm down and feel okay and feel like, no, I'm telling you the truth. It's going to be okay. So they're trying to, they're trying to manage. They want to keep both and manage both. So they usually are like, I can, I can, I can keep both of these and manage both of them. And there's a lot of um, chaos that ensues in that process for people. Yes. Yes. And it's very painful. And I think for many betrayed partners, incredibly traumatizing to see the way in which their, you know, loved one can lie to them and will lie to them. Um, I think uh, I've had partners describe that as just being, feeling like, gosh, they will, they threw me under the bus, you know, or it's like being in the deep end of the pool and they're putting your head under to keep theirs above water. Right. And there's this real experience of their survival is more important than me that happens there. You talked about that weird feeling, this internal battle between being repulsed and disgusted and horrified by what your partner has done. And at the same time, they're still your partner. You've chosen them to be with you through all of life's up and downs. And quite frankly, if something as horrific as this has happened in your life, they're the person you want to run to and get solace from and cry on their shoulders. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I found that incredibly validating. I know you have a, a fancy word for it and we can use the fancy <laughs> word, but I just, I just love, love this piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I call this attachment ambivalence. So those are the fancy words, right? And what we're really talking about here is a bo bodily based processes that you are not in charge of that are happening inside of you because you are a human being and you're wired a certain way. And so normally in our world, our threat response system and our attachment systems, which has to do with how we bond and our relationships, they work really, really well together. So I go to work, I have a really stressful conversation with a coworker or my boss. I go back to my desk and I text my partner or I call my partner, right? And what's happening there is our threat response system lit up when we had the stressful conversation and then our attachment system said, reach for connection. Because when you connect to your partner, you feel better. That's what regulates the stress. That's what helps us calm back down. So usually our threat response system and our attachment system sync up and work well together. What happens with betrayal is that these two systems come into conflict. And now what we have is we have the person that we normally turn to 
when we are threatened, when we are in danger, when we feel insecure, the person we normally reach for is now the person who is actually creating the danger for us. They're actually the source of our pain. And so because of that, our attachment system still says, wait, reach for them. They're your person in the world. So they're who we go to when we're in distress. So go close to them, reach for them, go close to them. But our threat response system is saying danger, 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 run, run, protect, fight, flee, freeze, you know, do all of those things. This person is not safe. So what that creates inside of us is this conflict in these two motivational systems. And what we do then out of that is one minute we're, we're like, let's sit down and have a conversation. I still love you. I want our marriage to work. I want our relationship to succeed. And then, you know, two hours later, we're like, get out of the house. I never want to see you again. I hate your guts. You are the worst, right? I don't want anything to do with you. How could you have done this to me? And we're vacillating between these two extremes because of what's happening in our bodily-based systems. So I think what's really helpful for betrayed partners is to understand that this is normal. This experience where you feel kind of crazy, like, why do I still want my partner who just, I just found out cheated on me to hold me? Or why do I even still want to have sex with them? Or why do I even want to talk to them? And then at other times I hate them. Why, why am I going all over the place here? Why am I in both of these extremes? And you're in both of those extremes because you are a human being in distress with your primary attachment figure. And you are in the dilemma that happens when your person in the world is the person who becomes dangerous to you. And it's normal. It's everybody goes through it and it's normal. Oh, so validating. You know, in our unique situation, because it was a porn addiction, not infidelity, what we ended up doing or what I ended up doing to deal with this, not knowing that this was a thing, was I named him two different things. Hmm. So I would call my husband's name is John. And so I would call him when I was interfacing with addicted John, because I could start seeing when he was in his addiction mm-hmm. to husband John. Mm-hmm. And I almost separated them out. So I got to be really mad and angry at addicted John. Mm-hmm. And I got to run for solace and comfort because he was in a position that he did feel the guilt eventually. And I, I f- maybe we'll talk about that because I feel like that's very different to deal with somebody who's who's open and willing and ready to move forward and someone who's not. Yes. But I, so because I was in that unique situation with my husband, I was able to cry and and complain about addicted John and, and to my husband. So it was a really, a sweet moment in a really difficult part of my life. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I would just say this for those who are listening, who maybe your story is a little different than what you just shared. Maybe you're with what I like to call a belligerent cheater, which is somebody who's like unrepentant and blaming you and all of those kinds of All the gaslighting, all the fun. Yeah. And you will still find yourself wanting to go close to them. And that is because you are a normal human being. And they are your primary attachment in the world. 
And if you're saying to yourself, but wait, they've been in this affair. They're not attached to me. They're not connected to me. They're connected to their addiction or to the affair partner. They are connected to you. When we pair bond with another person, when we pair up into long-term relationships, we actually become one physiological unit. So our partner regulates our heart rate, our breathing, our blood pressure, our hormones. So that language of the two shall become one that's poetry is actually describing a biological reality. And that means that even if your partner is addicted and or in an affair or whatever they're doing, they're also attached to you. And you both are attached at the level of your bodies. And this is why betrayal is so incredibly distressing and painful is because of the way that we're intertwined in our bond with one another. So your bond may not feel good and it may not be functioning well, but it is still there. Mm, yeah. Thank you for adding that. Mm-hmm. You In the book, you have a diagram. It's sort of this cycle between disconnection and connection and disconnection again. Could mm-hmm. you talk a little about that, about that and maybe how shame plays a role in that too? Yeah. So the cycle of disconnection and connection, just it's the attachment ambivalence cycle. So it just shows how we tend to move through these two phases as our system is switching in and out, right? So we tend to not tolerate disconnection from our partner well. So even when we are like, I don't like you, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. That actually creates its own kind of stress for us. And so it's hard for us to stay in disconnection for very long. And as we stay in that, our stress gets higher. So eventually we will have some kind of like, I can't do it anymore. And something that kind of moves us to reach for our partner and reach for connection with them. And then connection, even with somebody who is causing us the pain is also still regulating in some ways for our system. So we might have like this kind of feeling of like, I'm just kind of calm and back in my body again. I can think better. I feel clearer. The brain fog is cleared for a little bit until we remember that they're dangerous right? Then we, all of a sudden we see a TV show, we, we find something, something triggers us back into the big emotions of betrayal. And now we want to disconnect again. So we can just kind of cycle through this, uh, kind of go round and round and round. And the way that shame plays into that. So shame is one of the binds that we are dealing with in betrayal because shame tends to connect to betrayed partners, whether they're in connection or disconnection. So when I connect to my partner and I reach for them, I feel shame because where is my self-respect? Where is my dignity and my self-respect? Why am I, this person has treated me terribly. They've been lying to me. They've been cheating on me. Why am I reaching for them? right? So we feel shame about that. We feel shame about our longing for connection, our normal, healthy longing for connection. We feel shame about it. On the disconnection side, we often feel shame because when we experience disconnection in our relationships, relational disconnection often automatically creates shame inside of us particularly if we have childhood trauma at all, where we experience in our childhood neglect or abandonment, 
um, less than nurturing behavior from our parents, then those moments of relational disconnection in childhood made us feel like maybe something was wrong with us. And that's why we were experiencing disconnection. So when we experience relational disconnection in our adult relationships, it can plunge us into shame and the same feeling of, am I experiencing this because something's wrong with me? Am I somehow not worthy of a safe, secure bond, fidelity, loyalty, honesty, love? And is something wrong with me? So it can plunge us into shame. So shame can connect to both sides of the cycle. And that kind of leaves partners with nowhere to go that they don't encounter shame. So that's another one of the binds. That's another one of the betrayal binds is the shame bind. Oh, what a fun little soup that this is. <laughs> this is why it is complex, right? It's complex, which I, which is why what you've done here is marvelous to mm. make it accessible. And I think you mentioned in the book, something like um, to tame it, you need to name it. Is that the phrase? Yeah, Daniel Siegel has coined that phrase, name it to tame it. Name it to tame it. And that when we name something, it's almost uh, just by naming it and understanding it, it's regulating for us. So well, I see this all the time when partners come through our coaching program and they learn about attachment ambivalence and they really like see it all, like how it's playing out for them. It calms them down and shifts their energy, shifts the dynamic for them because just by understanding it, it's regulating. Yeah. You've mentioned this a couple of times, but I thought maybe we could spend a little bit of uh, time here on that shift in self-perception that can happen with betrayal. You talked about it in terms of the, the shame piece. Maybe I'm unworthy. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Mm. Uh, for me, I experienced it more like, how did I not see this? I thought I was a very intuitive emotionally aware person. I mean, I was a marriage coach when I found out. We had gone through a lot of work in our relationship. I had read all the books and I was working with couples. Uh, it just kind of threw me into a, a pit of confusion. Am I really who I think I am? C could you talk a little bit more about that and what you see betrayed partners go through? Yeah, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I think that it's, I think sometimes we miss how huge this is for betrayed partners because when betrayal happens in a relationship, we know that it creates disconnection from our partner, right? We know that it hurts the bond between us and our partner and damages trust and severs safety and all of those things. What we pay a little less attention to, but I think is equally huge is that it does the same thing with ourselves right? We lose connection with ourself and we start to question what we knew and understood about who we were in the world and who we are in the world. So that can look like questioning your lovability and desirability and sense of worth and value inside of your relationship. I thought I was loved. I thought I was valued. I thought I was safe. I thought I was secure. I thought this looked like this. 
And I thought I was worthy of that. And now I have found out all of this and it has plummeted me into insecurity about myself and questions about who I really am. And am I really worthy of this? Or am I not worthy? Did I cause this? Is this my fault? Is there some deficit in me or flaw in me? All of these questions come up for betrayed partners around themselves. And then I think to your point, what you said is also really significant, this sense of how did I miss it? How did I not know? How did I not see it? You know, we have lots of folks um, that we work with who are in like 30 and 40 year marriages who just discovered that things were going on the whole 30 years, 20 years, 40 years, you know, and they're just trying to figure out how did I coexist with this person in the rea- in one reality? And really there is a whole nother reality that I didn't know about. And how can that be? And then what does that mean about me? Can I trust myself? Can I trust my ability to perceive reality accurately? Can I trust how I judge people, my judgment and perception of other people? So for a lot of betrayed partners, it really rocks their world in terms of understanding who they are and their sense of self, their sense of trust in themselves. Um, and it also really rocks their trust in others, you know, and of course in their partner and all of that. So the sense of self takes an enormous hit in the process of betrayal. And I think there's a lot of focus on repairing the relationship with the cheating partner or uh, making a choice to leave the relationship with the cheating partner and kind of getting through those two things. But I think we need an enormous amount of focus in the healing process on restoring the relationship with ourselves and reclaiming our sense of self and um, reclaiming and rebuilding trust with ourselves. And that's a huge part of the healing process for portrayed partners. Yeah, makes so much sense. And I can see how that would be missed. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the relationship eclipses it but I actually think that you can't repair your relationship well without repairing your sense of self and your relationship with yourself first, because you have to have something to draw on to risk again in your relationship and that you have to draw on your sense of trust with yourself. Ooh, that was good. Mm-hmm. Could you say that one more time? You have to draw on your sense of self. Yeah, you have to draw on your in order to, and I think this is true whether you're staying with your partner and trying to repair or you're leaving the relationship. Because if you're leaving the relationship, you're probably gonna try to have another relationship and go out and risk again with somebody. So there is no direction in healing for betrayed partners. It does not include risk, right? Risking again. And in order to risk again, we have to have something to draw on. And that is trust in ourselves and a clear knowledge of who we are, that we are able to make good choices, that we are able, that we have resourcefulness inside us to draw on, and we have trust with ourselves in that. And that's what allows us to do that risking. And what I see is partners trying to do the risking without that. And it's often not going well for them and they're really stuck and stumbling around and you have to go back and kind of do that work. That was good. (laughs) 
I got shivers. That was so good. It's risky. Yeah. This relationship no, stuff is so no risky. direction that doesn't involve risk, right? I think that's why partners often get frozen. They're trying to like figure out how to do something that doesn't involve risk or doesn't risk more loss or doesn't create fear and there's no direction that they're not going to have to work through that. Yeah. This intimacy. Yeah. It's risky business for sure. Going back to shame. Cause shame is so fun to talk about. Yes. <laughs> you mentioned something called carried shame, which I found to be really fascinating. I actually picked up your book because I was going through a betrayal that wasn't related to my intimate partner. It was in a friendship and I was just searching and desperate and looking. And I think I typed into YouTube. You've got lots of great YouTube videos, by the way, everyone go check her out on YouTube um, around betrayal trauma. That was the keyword I was looking for. And this piece, I think, was the piece I needed to heal from that betrayal. Hmm. Because the person that I was trying to heal with didn't want to heal with me. Because there was no guilt associated with what they had done. Now with my husband, like I mentioned before, he was there. He was ready. He was giving me all the passwords and ready to take a flip phone up and going to SA and or Sexaholics Anonymous. And he, anything I wanted, he was, he, he told all our family and friends that he had an addiction. It was a, it was a thing. Um, <laughs> so I didn't experience the carried shame with him. But yeah, this is important. So could you talk a little bit about what this is? Mm -hmm. So carried shame and, and the way that I was trained in understanding this, I was trained by Pia Melody, who back in the day wrote Facing Love Addiction and Facing Codependence. And she did amazing work on developmental trauma. And so my understanding, this comes from her. So I want to really give her credit for that. Um, but carried shame is when someone in our life is behaving in what we would call a shameless manner. So betrayal, cheating on somebody is being shameless, which means that you have lost your connection to your healthy guilt, which guilt is part of what keeps us appropriate in the world. It lets us know that we're violating our value system. If I do that, I will feel guilty because I will have done something that I know is outside of my values and has hurt another person. So when somebody is disconnected from that, they're behaving in a way that's very shameless. And because they are disconnected from that, the shame of what they are doing often can spill over onto the person that they're offending against and attach to them and become their feeling of shame. So what happens for betrayed partners is they often will carry the shame about the cheating. So that can look like actually when you were saying, you know, I wondered about my own ability to, how did I miss this? How did I not know about this? I actually think that that's a piece of carried shame mm. because it is, it is you feeling shame 
for having missed it versus I was actually doing a healthy behavior of trusting my partner while my partner was lying and hiding things from me. Mm -hmm. That actually is theirs to own versus I need to own it that I missed this, that I was a fool for trusting. I hear that one a lot from betrayed partners. I feel like a fool. That's a piece of carried shame. So carried shame can attach itself to different parts of us, right? We can feel like a fool. We can feel like we're less than or unworthy or undesirable. It can attach big time to our sexuality and make us feel like something's wrong and deficient in our sexuality because our partner cheated. So for betrayed partners, carried shame is a big phenomenon that they deal with. And then our culture, I, the, we have what I call shame intensifiers. And one of those shame intensifiers is our culture. Because in our culture, particularly if you are female, if, you're, if your partner cheats on you and you are female, the culture says, guess what? What, what were you not doing right? Right? If you're female and you cheat, guess what the culture says? You whore, right? <laughs> How dare you? So there's a lot of cultural shame, especially for female betray partners, that adds on to this carried shame, that intensifies the carried shame and the feeling that because their partner cheated, it's somehow their fault. And everybody's looking at them and saying, well, what were you not doing right that you couldn't keep your man or, you know, what was happening there? So carried shame attaches itself to betrayed partners and betrayed partners then have the work as part of their healing of releasing this carried shame. So one of the things that one of my supervisors said to me years ago is she said, you can't heal carried shame because it doesn't belong to you. The only thing you can do is give it back. And you don't need your partner to be willing to own or take back the shame is all you need to do is to say, I am no longer going to carry this. It doesn't belong to me. This is not my shame. I did nothing wrong by trusting my partner, right? There was not something deficient in me that I didn't know about this secret life that was so well hidden from me. So I'm going to let go of shame about that. That shame is not mine to carry. It does not belong to me. So doing work around releasing carried shame is part of the healing process for betrayed partners. Yeah, you suggest writing a letter, which I found incredibly healing. Yeah, good, 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 good. Yeah, it was yeah to write a letter. And again, you don't need to give the person the letter, mm -mm. right? Because they don't have to do anything for you to stop carrying the shame. They don't need to say, okay, I'll take it. I'll take it back. Yeah. No, it's really about you saying, I'm not, it's like, I don't want to carry your, your sack of shame rocks anymore. So I'm going to give this sack of shame rocks back. I'm going to put it down. I'm going to release it. And the letter is about how have I carried shame? What are the beliefs that I'm carrying? How is it impacting me? And what do I need to let go of and release and give back? So beautiful. Oh, Michelle, we're nearing the end of our time together. And I have more questions, but I think I'll just have to not ask them. <laughs> I'll try because I really do want people to know what type of programs you offer. I know you talked about helping both partners and where can people find you 
all of that stuff. Yeah. So folks can find me at our website, michellemays.com. And they can also find me on the YouTube channel. I have a Michelle Mays YouTube channel. There's lots of videos on there that are helpful for people. Um, we do have a coaching program for betrayed partners. You can see stuff about that on the website that is based on the new attachment-based model for treating partner betrayal. And so that's kind of the starting point for folks uh, in terms of coming into the, into the work. Do you also have programs for men for healing from sex addiction? So we have a program that we run uh, about three times a year called Foundations for Recovery. And it's for those folks who are in very early, they've just sort of figured out, I, I'm dealing with sexual compulsivity. I'm dealing with sex addiction, whatever you want to call it, problematic sexual behavior. I've got a problem around this. And in terms of recovery work, there are certain tasks that need to be accomplished at the beginning of recovery to lay a foundation for long-term sobriety. So we do have a program that does that, that you're doing that initial task work. And my colleague, Erin Temple runs it. And actually we just started last, I think we started, actually, I think we started Monday, yesterday, or maybe last week, maybe last week we started this round of it. So it'll come again because um, we do offer it uh, throughout the year at different times. And that's a great resource for really being in a group of, of guys that are all dealing with that and doing that initial task work that you need to do. Fantastic. I'm sure I'm going to be referring lots of folks to that program. Thank you again, Michelle, for saying yes to this interview. This was such a joy and such an honor to be able to have this conversation with you. And thank you for writing this book. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks, everyone for listening. And I'll talk to you in the next one. If you've enjoyed this episode, I have a favor to ask of you. It's really hard to get the word out about a podcast about sex. What would really, really help is if you would leave a rating and a review. And I know that you get asked this all the time in different podcasts, but please, I beg you, it would really, really help so that more women who need this message will hear it. All you have to do is go into your Apple podcast app. It's the purple icon. And if you go to the podcast page where it shows my face, and has a little button that says latest episodes. If you scroll down past the episodes and you get to a section called ratings and reviews, there's a little purple writing thing that says write a review. If you click on that, it will ask you to give it a five stars. Actually, you can put any stars, but five is what I would love. And put a title and then write your review. Thank you so much for supporting this little venture here and I really am so grateful. If you are curious about wanting it more and how this program could help you want and enjoy sex more with your husband and you feel like it may be a great next step for you, you can go to janadentonhouse.com slash wanting it more to sign up for the wait list, to learn more, to see when we're running our next round. All right, that's it. I'll see you next one.